Washington, being an ordinary Roman soldier assigned to yet another execution detail on a nondescript morning in Palestine just over 2,000 years ago. The horror, the whole human horror of that whole scene, which in the early days used to keep you up at night, now has become routine. Routine. Unimaginable human suffering now has become routine, which in itself is probably an equal horror. Over the years, you've been assigned to hundreds of similar details so that there's no reason to expect that this one on this nondescript morning would be any different or anything special. But it was. And you wondered that night back in the barracks if you would ever look at the cross the same way again. When was the last time you looked at the cross? I don't mean the cross around your neck. I don't even mean this brilliantly lit cross in front of us this evening. I mean the cross which served as a well-crafted killing machine for the Roman Empire. Death on a Roman cross was, was reserved for the worst offenders of society's rules. It was the cross, the one Jesus died on, that serves as a kind of, I don't know, fork in the road for all of human history. It's spiritual ground zero. When was the last time you really looked at it? I mean, really looked at the cross. When was the last time you listened to it? Listened to the crowds as they cursed at the man who had just been pinned to it. To the anguished cries from his few followers who remained around. The muffled, grief-stricken weeping of his mother who served vigil as the life of her son slowly, slowly drained away. Listen to the two career criminals also dying on either side of him, hurling insults and bile at him from both directions. When was the last time you listened to the cross? When was the last time you listened as Jesus coughed up his last few words from the cross? In those words... His true humanity was revealed as well as his true heart, which was, even then, even as he, racked in almost unimaginable pain and sorrow, was still trying to care, was still trying to save people, still going about his father's business, and as they nailed him to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even then. And as he hung there for those six hours... He spoke really very little. But one thing he did say I'd like to explore just for a few minutes tonight. It was the phrase that he spoke to a criminal who somewhere during those terrible hours had a change of mind and had a change of heart and reached out to Jesus as a drowning man reaches for a rope thrown to him from shore. And Jesus looked at him and he said, Today... Today you'll be with me in paradise. What had led up to this promise from Jesus to this dying man? What did he mean? And more importantly for us, what possible connection could there be between this professional criminal and Jesus' words to him and you and me? Well, let me briefly rewind 
the tape and see what had happened. First, you need to know that Jesus knew that this terrible day was coming. It was why he came to earth. He knew that one day his life would be laid down literally, literally to pay for the sins of men and women who have ever lived for all human history. All the sins that had been committed, all the sins that would would be committed. Now, I don't know if he was, as he was growing up in his father's carpenter shop, that when he fashioned the same type of wood into useful household furniture, that one day a crudely constructed wooden plank would become his own instrument of death or not. I don't know that, but I do know that this day did not take him by surprise. It didn't. Nothing that happened during those last 24 hours of his life took him by surprise. I think he knew a few things. I think he knew that as he was shuttled between religious and political leaders, that the trials that he would endure for sh- were for show purposes only. There was no real justice going on. There couldn't be. Justice was not going to make an appearance anytime that night. I think he knew also the significance of the time when he was dying. It was the night of Passover. It was that time and the Jewish holidays when the Jewish people remembered how God saved them from certain death. When the angel of death came through Egypt and took away the firstborn of every Egyptian household, the Jews, if they put blood on the top and on the sides of the door, would be saved. The angel of death would pass over them. See, Jesus knew the significance of the day. And I think he knew the significance of the time when he was born. I think like a thoroughbred thoroughbred racehorse is born to run, he was born to die. But I don't think that fact makes it any easier to face. If you have ever lost a loved one who knew that they were dying, it was still painful for them to go through it. Very painful indeed. It didn't make it any easier. Jesus spent a portion of the night before he, de- before he died in prayer in the garden asking his father, even though he knew he was born to die, asking his father, Father who can do all things, if, if there is a possibility, if, if, if there is a plan B, please reveal that now because the horror at that moment of the cross was closing in around him. But there was no plan B. And I think that by the time they bound and led him out of the garden, he knew that. See, he knew that. By the time the nails were driven into his hands, the gut-wrenching sound of bone colliding with iron was heard mixing with the shrieks of searing pain and cheers from an angry, angry crowd. He had spent an entire night without sleep. He had been spat upon. He had been beaten in a manner that many times killed prisoners. He had had the hairs on uh, his face literally pulled out and inch-long thorns pushed into his head. In this pitiable condition, he was forced to carry his own cross upon which he would die. It's like a man forced to dig the grave upon which he would soon be buried in. A condemned man. Within sight of the execution spot, he could bear no more, the Bible tells us, and he collapsed. The one who would bear the sins of the world could no longer bear the weight of the cross. After nailing the three to the cross beams, they raised the cross and they dropped it into carefully prepared holes with a thud. 
sending four-inch splinters into Jesus' butchered back. And there he hung between the other two, the weight of their bodies pulling and tearing at every joint, their lungs cramping and filling with fluid, every single breath torture as they pushed up on the nails going through their feet to grab the next breath. And yet, even in this condition, Jesus prayed. He prayed for those who took pleasure in inflicting such insidious torture upon him. He prayed that they would be forgiven. He thought about the care of his mother, Mary. He listened as the soldiers, religious leaders in the crowd heard insults, words of hatred at him. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Even those who were executed with him took out their terror and anger on him. Aren't you the Christ, they said. Save yourself and save us too. You know, sometimes when I have been with people who are dying and they come to the end of their life, Uh, a lot of people have been given an opportunity because of illness to take stock of their life. And a lot of times something happens. If the end was brought about over a period of time, uh, that illness many times has tempered that man or that woman. It's literally had an effect of knocking out any prideful arrogance or self-reliance from them. But I have to say this too. That has not always been the case. Sometimes the circumstances at the end change a man or a woman very little, very little. This man had lived his entire life in spiritual darkness, and now he comes to the very end, one of these criminals, and he shows that nothing had changed. Not one thing had changed. He is within hours of dying, and still nothing had changed. His situation had not softened him. It had just an opposite effect. It made him harder. Like Pharaoh, like Nebuchadnezzar, like King Saul. And the Bible has a very difficult and horrific word for that person. The Bible's word is this. There is no hope. There is no hope. There is no rest. There is no blessing. You know, her relatives may say, at least she's out of her misery now. But if the Bible is to be believed then her misery has really just begun. He or she has committed the one sin that could never be forgiven. They have rejected God's visitation. God has come. He has given his word. They have heard the gospel, and they have rejected it. But there was another man hanging on Jesus' other side. When first fastened to that death rat, He too joined with the others, berating, insulting, cursing Jesus. But something happened. Something happened in the hours as they passed. The exact same terrible circumstances did not harden him, but it served to soften him. You know, I once heard that a death sentence has a wonderful way of concentrating the mind. And for him, it certainly did. So here he is. He's dying next to the best man he had ever seen. A man 
who was literally forgiving his torturers. A man who was still reaching out to others. A man who was caring for those who were humiliating him, who had beaten him, who were torturing him. And that condemned criminal began to change. He began to change. He said to the one condemning Jesus on the other side, Don't you fear God? We are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. We're dying for our sins that we have committed ourselves. No one shoved us down this path. We have lived the life that we decided to live, and here is where it's led us. We have no one to blame for ourselves, but this man, he has done nothing. He has done nothing to deserve this. Now, most people would not see this or would fear admitting it, but his sufferings have brought him to, I don't know how else to put it, dare I say it, his sufferings have brought him to a good place. His sufferings have brought him to the sinner's place. Stanley Voke, in his wonderful little booklet, Personal Revival, said this. He said, the hardest thing for anyone is to take the sinner's place. So hard, in fact, that many never take it at all, while others, having once been brought there, do not care to come there again. For none are by nature fond of the sinner's place. And yet, if we don't come there, we can never experience the sweetness of sin's forgiveness or taste the goodness of God's grace. The sinner's place is where we accept without excuse that we are sinners. And we tell the truth and we tell the whole truth. God knows it anyway. He knows it anyway. The sinner's place is the place where we realize that our sin brought Jesus to this place, to this cross. It is my pride that formed the nails which punctured his hands and feet. It is my lust which formed the spear driven into his side. It is my arrogance that formed a mocking royal crown of thorns that were pressed deeply into his skull. Folks, sometimes even Christians, sometimes even believers, those who once came to the sinner's place, they're afraid to go back. But God is pleased by one thing above all others. If you know anything about Scripture, if you've read any Scripture at all, God is pleased by a broken and a contrite heart. He could have nothing to do with pride or self-esteem. Often, the very circumstances that cause us so much pain are the very instruments that God uses to break us. Maybe He's doing that tonight to you. Maybe the things that... uh, You, in spite of them, dragged yourself here tonight to be with us. Maybe those are the very things that God is using to drive you to him. But we're afraid of being broken. We're afraid of what it might all mean. But the Bible is literally filled with men and women who had to come to the sinner's place, the place of brokenness. And when they did, God met them there. God works to bring us to the ground upon which he can meet us. He works to bring us to the place of brokenness. And from there springs repentance and forgiveness and restoration. Folks, God blesses everyone and all that he breaks. When the loaves were broken, the 5,000 were fed. 
When, when the woman broke the vase to anoint Jesus, the entire house was filled with a fragrance. Everybody enjoyed it. God blesses what he breaks. He brings life out of death. There's a hymn. Its words goes like this. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was shed. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than what? All our sin. I think this second thief, this second revolutionary, in the best way he could, I think in those moments, with the softening effect of the horror before him and that was being put upon him, I think he came to understand grace. In a, in a, in a, maybe even in an infantile way, but I think he understood grace. I think he understood that it wasn't a weakness. It wasn't a disability that, that was his problem. It wasn't a propensity. It wasn't a failure. It wasn't a shortcoming. It was his sin. And unless something changed, unless something changed right away, I mean in minutes, he would be eternally lost. And so knowing all this, that thief pushed himself up on the nails that were driven through his feet. He gulped a breath of air and he cried out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, I believe you will rise over death and one day you will reign. Remember me on that day, whenever that day may be. I don't understand it all. I don't know when you will come, but remember me, remember me. And Jesus, racked in emotional and spiritual and physical pain, looked at him and he said those words. Those last words that anyone would ever speak to him. He said, I tell you the truth, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Independent of any sacraments, though you haven't been baptized, though you've never celebrated communion without any formal rites, this day you will be with me. Because you called out to me, because you believed in my power to save Lost sinners, today you will be with me in paradise in a place where all the pain will be lifted. It's coming. It's soon. All the pain and all the tears will be dried up. And you will find a satisfying, deep, never-ending peace. Soon, my friend. Soon. Today. It's going to happen today. You know, among the worst effects of sin is that sin literally has the power to blind us to the truth. It keeps us from seeing sin for what it is, and it keeps us in slavery to it. And when we are blind, we are held, we're held in a kind of bondage, a kind of slavery. But sin also has a, a residual power, a power within it to chains, chain us in guilt and self-condemnation, making our lives literally a living hell. If we believe that we are not forgiven then we will seek to hide out of fear of being found out. We do that all the time. We resort to deceit. We will become hopeless. We, we cling to our sin even tighter than we did before for momentary comfort until the chains are so tight, we get to a point we can't ever imagine escaping. This is impossible. I will never, ever escape their grip. 
But there is an answer, but there's only one answer. It is the grace of God. Grace which comes in and softens our calloused hearts and sheds his love inside of us and in so doing begins to put inside of us a literal desire to stop sinning. A literal desire to please the one who gave his life for me. When we know that we will be met with not a wagging finger, but outstretched arms of love and forgiveness, it makes it so much easier to come to the sinner's place. But it is a place that we must come to again and again and again. But dear people, the choice is ours. There is no middle ground. There's no halfway point. Everyone has to choose. There are some in this room tonight who see Jesus as a good and holy man who lived and who died but has no real relevance for my life. But take another look at the criminal on the cross. Look at him. Hear him. He had done things which had resulted in him receiving a death sentence. He had probably never heard a single sermon that Jesus ever preached. He probably had never been there when Jesus healed a single sick person, expelled a demon. None of it. But hanging there on the cross that afternoon, he saw Jesus for who he was. The Savior of the world. And he trusted Jesus to take him to the other side. There is one other phrase that Jesus spoke on the cross that I need to mention as I close. These were some of his very last words. He said, just before he died, it is finished. It is finished. Payment for sin had been made. No more blood of bulls and goats. Jesus paid it all. Nothing to do on our part except receive his forgiveness, but receive it we must. Let me ask you something tonight. What is burdening you? What is it that is burdening you tonight as you drove down the driveway and came in here? For some, it is the weight of sin never forgiven. I really believe that. But you need to know that Christ came to save sinners like you and to save a sinner like me. But, you say, there's so much to be forgiven. There's just so much. Isaiah 59 says this, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. I want us to bow our heads right now in prayer. Would you, you know, we don't always have to close our eyes when we pray, but I'd like us to do that tonight as we bow our heads. And I, I want you, I want you to join me in the sinner's place. I want you to silently whisper to God that sin or that sinful tendency as God brings it or them to mind. It's not that you haven't known about it before this moment, folks, but perhaps you've never felt that you could truly be forgiven. Or maybe you have given up believing that God could possibly forgive you again and again and again as you work through the grace of sanctification that he offers. Tonight's the night when you come to the sinner's place and you will find God's grace can be applied 
to your situation. And beloved, you can be forgiven. Christian, those of you here who have trusted Christ, but your lives have gotten out of control, you need to look afresh at the cross. You need to hear its voice. You too need to come to the sinner's place tonight to remember the cross, to have Jesus wash you clean. What have you held on to that's robbing you of your peace and is affecting every area of your life? You need to call those things out and you need to nail them to the cross tonight. For some of you, you've confessed those sins, but Satan, the enemy of your soul, has convinced you that Jesus is simply not enough, that something more needs to be done. You have no peace and you have no assurance that you're forgiven. But tonight, Good Friday, 2019, you need to once again look at and listen to the cross. You need to see it finished once and for all. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Tonight, tonight is the night that you will look back on when the great deceiver tries to get you to believe that you are not forgiven. This is your stake in the ground. That dying man reached out to Jesus the best way he knew how. The best way he could. And you need to do that tonight. In the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation.